Romans chapter 5, as you can see, we're in verse 20. Now, as I was studying for this, I was thinking about the bitter joke that many of us as Minnesotans have, and that is there's really only two seasons in Minnesota. There's winter and road construction, right? We're all bitter about that. And I'm convinced that the highway department deliberately sets up detour signs to get you as far lost as they can. But if you look at their website, technically, a detour sign is designed to get you away from the construction and back to the main road as soon as possible. And the reason I mention that is because this morning in Romans 5, 20 through 21, we're going to learn that the law of Moses functions much like a detour sign. It is designed to get us back to the main road. Now, you might ask yourself, well, what is the main road? Well, in God's salvific plan, the main road is messianic salvation. And we know this from Genesis 3, all the way in Genesis 3.15, through the rest of the Bible, we see God's main road for salvation is through the Messiah. The messianic promise is an inviolable promise, a promise that cannot be negated by the coming of the Mosaic law. And so today we're going to wrestle with why the law. And I want to read to you the late great scholar Leon Morris. He said this about the law of Moses. He said, quote, the law was not concerned with preventing sin for it was too late for that. He says, nor was it concerned with salvation from sin for it was too weak for that. But rather it was concerned with showing sin for what it is, unquote. Well said, Leon Morris. Dear ones, today we're going to see that the law was designed not to bring you and I to a new destination. It was designed to bring every single person back to the main road, the road of messianic salvation. And so I want to show you in this beginning slide why it is that Paul has to address this issue. Remember again, I've mentioned this almost in every sermon lately, that in Romans 3 and 4, Paul explains the great salvation that we have through faith in Christ. But when we get into chapter 5, he changes the theme. And in chapter 5 now, he talks about the hope, this assurance of future glory that all of us as believers can have because of what Christ has done. And that is the theme that goes all the way through Romans chapter 8. In fact, at the end of Romans 8, Paul returns to this hope of future glory. And so you have an inclusio, the beginning of Romans 5, the end of Romans chapter 8. But in the meantime, in between, Paul has to address various impediments to this future glory. Those things that might keep us as God's people from entering into the glory. So for example, in Romans 5, 9 through 11, Paul addressed this question. He said, what about future wrath? That's the question he addresses. Wouldn't wrath certainly keep you and I from entering into the promises of future glory? But what's the answer? Well, in Jesus Christ, you and I have been saved from the wrath to come, Romans 5, 9. Well, then another question he raises and answers is, well, what about sin and death that was brought about by Adam, Romans 5, 12 through 19? Well, we learn that that's been remedied. How? Well, by our new representative, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. But now, think about it, Paul has to say, can really all of history and all of mankind be so neatly broken down into either you're just under Adam or you're just under Christ? What about the law? And so he has to address this question, what about the coming of the Mosaic law? In fact, the great scholar Douglas Moo puts it this way, he says, quote, 
the division of humankind into two groups determined by solidarity with the two divinely appointed representative corporate figures of Adam and Christ is simple and straightforward. But it may be objected, is not this scheme overly simple? Can the centuries of salvation history recorded in the pages of the Old Testament be so blithely ignored? Specifically, how about the law of Moses, which occupies so central a place in the life of God's people, Israel? Unquote. Well said. Dear ones, that's what Paul has to answer. Today you're going to learn in Romans 5, 20 through 21, that the law did not come to remedy sin or to temper it. In fact, it came to increase the sin. And so we're going to learn that if God's chosen people, the elect Israel, if they couldn't obey the fullest expression of God's will, the Mosaic law, how would the Gentiles fare any better? And so in that way, the law of Moses functions like a detour sign saying you can't go the road of human works. You must go back to the main road, the road of messianic salvation. And so that's, I think, the grand point here in Romans 5, 20 through 21. Let's read what Paul says. He says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice here at the outset that there are two purpose statements in this passage. Does everyone see that in red? You have two so that's. And I want you to see that the ultimate logic of this text leads us from the law to Jesus Christ. In fact, the structure of the text, both in Greek and English, point to this. Let me show you what I mean. Notice my pointer here. You begin with the law, verse 20, and what do you end with? Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the role of the law. It's to bring us like the detour sign back to the main road. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, now, there's many important details, though. The first one I want to talk about is, notice in verse 20, it says that the law came in. And one thing I think it's important for you and I to define as we're interpreting this is, what does Paul mean by the law? Well, here I think Paul is referring to the Mosaic Covenant as a binding legal code. The do's and the don'ts that you had to perform in order to have right standing before God. However, we're going to talk more about this in our application you and I have to realize that Paul does not divorce the law as binding legal covenant from the law as scripture. The law as scripture is what reveals, that is the first five books of Moses, this binding legal covenant. Okay, so the law here, though, for our purposes, is that binding legal covenant. And notice he says that the law came in, and the very term, the verb came in, is significant. It comes from the verb par ace erkama. Use that five times at dinner parties and you own it, right? Well, par ace erkama, erkama means to come, and there's two prefixes that are put on that term. Para, which means to come alongside. Many of you have heard of the paramilitary organizations. These are military units that come alongside the normal military to augment it. Or a paralegal assistant. They come alongside the regular legal professionals to augment them. So here you have this idea of coming alongside, but then you have the preposition, or the prefix rather, ace. Now ace means in. So you have this idea of coming in but alongside. Now one scholar put it this way, as I have on the screen, it, it means to come in by a side road. 
And I like that. Now, what's very interesting about this term is if you read the theological dictionary of the New Testament, it claims that this term is always negative. That's how it was used in the culture of the day. And it only occurs twice in the New Testament. And in Galatians 2.4, the other occurrence, it is certainly negative. It has to do with those rascal Judaizers who sneaked in par ace erkamai to steal our liberty as Christians. But what I want you to realize here is that this term isn't necessarily negative, as if God is doing some malevolent thing, some diabolical thing, by sending us the law. But instead, I think Paul uses it, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to convey the idea that, yes, indeed, the law is a side road. It's not the main course. It's not God's main plan of salvation. And so right away in this text, we're given the hint, this is a side road. This is a detour that's designed to point us back to the main road of messianic salvation. Okay, just a little hint right away. But now Paul explicitly states, in fact, the purpose of the law. He says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Notice what Paul does not say. He does not say that the law came in to tamper down sin a little bit. It was getting a little out of hand. No, the law didn't do that. And remember, this is the purpose statement from God himself. What was the purpose of bringing the law? The apostle Paul speaking on behalf of God. It was to increase the transgression. Now, that's somewhat shocking, isn't it? Now, what does it mean to increase the transgression? Well, some have thought that this means simply that the law incites people to do more and more sins. It'd be this kind of idea. A three-year-old, take your, any given three-year-old in America or around the world, they don't want the cookie in the cookie jar until when? Until you tell them that they can't have the cookie in the cookie jar. There is something within our sin nature that is incited by prohibition specifically the prohibition of authority and the law. And certainly that is one of Paul's points when we get to Romans 7, 7 through 11. If you jot down, we'll get to this, Romans 7, 7 through 11, Paul there says, hey, I wouldn't have even known what coveting was unless the commandment came and told me not to covet. And so certainly the law does incite us to sin, but I don't think that that's exactly Paul's point here. And the reason why is this term transgression. The term transgression is in the singular, and it's used in Romans 5.15, Romans 5.17, Romans 5.18. In all three cases, it has to do with Adam's transgression. Now, my point there then is violation of known law constitutes transgression. Transgression is a little bit different than sin, technically. Transgression has to do with violating a known law. Sin has to do with general rebellion, but it may not be a law that was explicitly stated. Now, let me explain what I'm getting at. Turn your Bibles to Romans 4.15, as you see on the screen before you, and I'll explain the significance of this. Romans 4.15. Again, what are we wrestling with? We're wrestling with what does Paul mean that the transgression increased by the law? Well, we're given a hint here. Romans 4.15, Paul says, For the law brings about wrath... But where there is no law, there also is no violation. Now, when Paul says that, is he implying that there was no sin prior to the Mosaic law? Of course not. But what he's getting at 
is that when Adam sinned, there was a specific law or command from God that he had violated, and therefore it was transgression. Remember, God said to Adam, you can eat of all these trees, but it's this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you can't eat. So he had a specific command. Now, for generations, humanity didn't have a specific command until when? Until the law came. And so when the law came, transgression of known laws became the norm for sinful people. And so transgression then is actualized by all people, or another way of thinking about it is that all people became their own Adam. Why? Because we had complete revelation from God to the Jews who were to be a light to the nations as to what was pleasing to God and what was not pleasing to God, and every single person falls short of it. And in that sense, the sin increased. We violated known law and therefore, sin went from sin to transgression. I think that that's the grand point that he's making. Now, right away, though, we see good news. We see where the sin increased or the transgression. He says grace abounded all the more. And that's wonderful news. Literally, in the Greek, you had sin abounding, but you had God's grace superabounding. And I want you to think throughout redemptive history of the Israelites, how they sin time and time again against God's command. So much so that does he not lead them into Babylonian captivity for 70 years? And you might think, well, that's the end of the Jews. They violated God's law. They transgressed it. But his grace superabounded. And after 70 years, he brought them back from captivity back into the land. Now, when God's grace superabounds most fully, is it in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God is not simply negating as a checkmate what Adam has brought into the world, sin and death, but he superabounds and takes over and brings even everlasting life, resurrection, and the right to reign in the kingdom. And so in that sense, God's grace in Christ doesn't just abound, it superabounds. Now, notice here we come to the second purpose statement in verse 21. He says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, very important point Paul makes here. He says sin reigned in death. Now in death, I would take that not as a preposition of instrumentality. It's, no, it's not by death. I would take this as the sphere of death. And what that means, listen carefully, what that means is when Adam sinned, he brought death to all of us. So when you and I are born into this world, we are born into the sphere of death, meaning spiritual death, separated from God. And this is why it says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, you are dead in your trespasses. So in this sphere of spiritual death that you and I are born into, and by the way, this is why we have to be, what? Born again. In that sphere sin reigns. Why does sin reign in the sphere of spiritual death? Because spiritually dead people can only sin. We're bound to it. That's the point. And so it's in that sphere that death reigned. But the good news is even so, there's the contrast, grace, I'm sorry, let me just back up. Notice sin reigned in death. That was brought about by Adam. That's an important point because you're going to see a contrast. 
But notice in the underline, grace would reign through righteousness. Now, righteousness, death was brought about by Adam. Righteousness is the sphere brought about by Christ. And so righteousness, of course, has to do with what? Having a right standing before God. And the only way that any of us can have a right standing before God is to leave this world, as it were, one domain and go to Christ by faith, another domain. And it's in this domain of Jesus Christ that we have by faith that grace reigns. Grace superabundantly reigns in the righteousness that God performs in Jesus Christ to the point of what? Even eternal life. That's Paul's grand point. And so all of this is brought about by Jesus Christ. And so what I want you to do is I want you to follow the logic for a moment of the text. In the beginning, it says that the law came in to do what? To increase the sin, to increase transgression. What was the result of that? Well, that allowed God's grace to superabound, which resulted in what? Jesus Christ. And so the logic of this text is saying that the law came not to temper sin, but to increase it for the purpose of bringing us to Jesus Christ. That's the grand point. Just like that detour sign, it's not designed to bring you to a new destination. It's designed to get you back to the main road. Now, there's three points that I want you to consider before we move off this. Number one, the law is not inherently deficient. So when it says that it came to increase sin, it's not that the law itself is deficient. Paul says in Romans 7, 12, that the, holy, or the law is holy, it's righteous, and it's good. The deficiency is not in the law, but it's in us. And so the law can't take dead sinners in Adam and bring life. That's only something that Christ can do. That's number one. But number two, think about it this way. How does the law make every single person, meaning both Jews and Gentiles, turn to Jesus Christ? Well, think about it this way. If Israel, God's elect, the chosen people, who have all of his blessings, if they cannot obey the greatest expression of God's will, the Mosaic law, how would Gentiles fare any better? Well, we won't. And so it's in that way that the law functions like a detour sign that forever says to humanity that the road to salvation by human works is closed. You can't go that way. Go back to the main road, the road that God has prepared from the beginning, that narrow road, as Jesus says, that leads to eternal life, and few find it through faith alone in Christ alone. That's the ultimate purpose of the law. Now, as I say that, this raises some questions, or at least it should raise questions in our minds as Christians. If that's true, the Mosaic law came to increase sin, what in the world are we to do with the law of Moses now? And so in our application, I want to answer two questions that I think should come into the mind of the reader of this text, and that's how we're going to apply it. Number one, what happened to the law of Moses since Christ came? Is it still operable? If it is, in what way is it operable? The second question, what role, if any, does the law still have 
if in fact it was designed to increase sin, what role does it have for the life of the believer and the rest of the world? Now, there's a book, oh, I forgot it, wouldn't you know? It's in my bag. Well, my wife has it back there. Maybe you can raise it up as I'm talking. Adam Oline turned me on to a book written by a man named Brian Rosner. And Bob DeWay and I have also read books in this series. It's a series of theology that's put out and edited by D.A. Carson. How many in here have heard of D.A. Carson? He's probably one of the greatest American scholars in the last 100 years. He's wonderful. Well, in this, oh, thank you. I got my little helper. Thanks, Will. Good job. It's going to give him a fist bump there. Here it is. It's called Paul and the Law. And what I love about this text is it really systematizes what Bob and I have been saying about the law, but it really systematizes it in a nice way. And so I really highly recommend this book by Brian Rosner called Paul and the Law. But let me explain what Rosner does. He systematizes what Paul does with the law and therefore what God is doing with the law. There's three things that Paul does. Number one, he repudiates the Mosaic law as a binding legal covenant, the do's and don'ts. He repudiates it. He gets rid of it. It's abolished. The second thing he does is he replaces the Mosaic law with Christ's law, the new covenant. The third thing that he does is he reappropriates sections of Old Testament scripture for new covenant living so that the law as scripture still functions as prophecy and wisdom for the people of God. So let me boil that down for our purposes today. So notice there was a repudiation, a replacement, and a reappropriation. But for our purposes this morning, I want you to come down to two things. What I'm going to show you from Scripture is that Scripture clearly teaches that the Mosaic law is a binding legal covenant has been abolished. But the Mosaic law as Scripture is always going to be profitable for prophecy and for wisdom to lead people to salvation and to sanctification. And so the ultimate issue then with the law of Moses is how are we approaching the law of Moses? Are we approaching it as binding legal covenant or as scripture? That's what we have to do and make straight in our mind. So with that, let's begin with number one. What happened to the law? And again, what I mean by the law is the law is a binding legal code. The do's, you must do this and you must not do that in order to have right standing before God. My claim is that the law is a binding covenant has been abolished. Now, I'm going to show you several texts that show this. One that I'm going to turn to here is in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul begins lamenting that his own countrymen, the Israelites, didn't find the main road of messianic mm-hmm. salvation. Paul says in Romans 10, verse 1 through 5, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now stop there. Notice in verse 3 where he says, for not knowing about God's righteousness, he's talking about the main road. They didn't know about God's main road of messianic salvation. In fact, they did a substitute. They went back to the detour. They went back to the Mosaic law 
And they treated that as if that was salvific. So they're going away from the main road back to the detour sign. And in that sense, they are becoming what I like to call spiritual do-it-yourselfers. You know, everyone knows do-it-yourselfers in America. This is the guys that are always blowing themselves up and electrocuting themselves by doing home projects, right? And every American's right is to do that, right? Well, I love these guys. They can do it. But when it comes to spiritual things, it is not good to be a spiritual do-it-yourselfer trying to come up with salvation on a plan that God never revealed. That's exactly what the Israelites did. They abused the law and tried to make it into something it was never designed by God to do. And so notice then we have in verse 4 an explanatory 4. Now Paul explains why is it that they are actually doing this and why is it a problem that they are becoming spiritual do-it-yourselfers? He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Stop there. Christ is the end, the termination of the Mosaic law. And when Paul says it's to everyone who believes, he's not saying, well, it's only for believers. What he's saying is it's only believers that understand that. That's the idea. But Jesus Christ is the termination of the law. Now, some will argue in this text that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Well, that's true. But the idea is that when the fulfillment of the shadow comes, you don't go back to the shadow. If, if Let's say a dealership sent you a picture of your car that you bought and you're waiting for it to be delivered. When your car comes, do you still keep using the little picture? No, you use your car. You don't go back to the picture of it. When Christ came, he terminated the law. And what's very interesting is what Paul cites. He gives another explanatory four. In verse five, he says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. That's an allusion to Leviticus 18.5. Leviticus 18.5, God put it out there. He says, if you will do the law, you'll live by it. But what's the implied implication? No one can do it. And so if you can do it, of course, Christ had to be the end of the law. The goal of the law then was to point back to the main road. And this is why Paul said in Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of works of the law are a what? They're under a curse. And then he cites the law. Deuteronomy 27.26, he says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide in by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Can anyone do all the things written in the law? Nope, the Jews can't do it. The Gentiles certainly can't do it. The law is therefore terminated by Christ, the main road. Now, if that's not sufficient for you, let's turn to another text, Ephesians 2, where we're going to see that Christ abolishes the law. A very strong term, Carter Geo. Now, here in this Ephesians 2 text, Paul is showing that God has made Jews and Gentiles into one new man, through the work of Christ. Listen to what he says. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you, that's Gentiles, who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now stop there for just a moment. The term there for barrier is mesotoikin. That term was used of the balustrade in the Jerusalem temple. Now, this balustrade, it's a wall. 
And what it did in the Jerusalem temple prior to 70 AD is it served to separate Jews from Gentiles. And so it showed that the Gentiles were far off. They didn't have access to God. So here, notice, dear ones, very carefully that Paul is using this as a metaphor. The Mesotoican, the barrier, the dividing wall, is ultimately what? It's the Mosaic law. Now, how do we know that? Because he tells us in verse 15, he says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having, by it having put to death the enmity. Dear ones, the law of commandments that you see highlighted in red, that's the Mosaic law. And we dare not try to say, well, that's just the ceremonial and civil aspects of the law. No, it's the whole thing. The Jews did not see the Mosaic law as broken into a tripart type. It was not broken into three parts. They saw it as a unity. And so today, if anyone says, well, it's just the ceremonial and civil aspects, no, it's the whole thing. All of the law, what did Jesus Christ do by the cross? He abolished it. The term in Greek there, kardogeo, means to render inoperative. He rendered inoperative the law. So is this the only couple of places that we see the idea of Christ abolishing or putting an end to the law? No. That's one of the major points that the writer of Hebrews makes. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, it's precisely the point that the writer of Hebrews makes. Now, don't turn to it, but just jot that down. In Hebrews 8, 7, the writer of Hebrews says that if the first covenant had been flawless, there would have been no need for a second covenant. What's the implication? The first one was faultless, and there's now a second one. Well, then if you read the narrative, he cites Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which is about what? The new covenant. And in that passage, God stated to his people that he would make a new covenant for them that wasn't like the old covenant. Why wasn't it like the old covenant? Because he would enable them by his spirit to believe and to obey. And then in, in Hebrews 8.13, the writer of Hebrews says that whatever is becoming obsolete is ready to disappear. He says he has made the first obsolete. Dear brothers and sisters, Paul has said in Romans 10.4 that Christ is the end of the law. In Ephesians 2, Christ abolished the law. The writer of Hebrews says that the Mosaic covenant, the law, is obsolete. How much clearer can we have it in the New Testament that the Mosaic Covenant as a binding legal code of do's and don'ts has been done away with in Jesus Christ. Now, why is this a big deal? Maybe some of you are yawning and say, I don't see the relevance. Well, I'll tell you what, we had people that had left our church over this issue. And here's the idea. Some Christians have the idea in their minds that they were saved by faith in Jesus Christ but then what they believe is that after they're saved, they're kind of done with the gospel. And the way to be sanctified is for the pastor to heap commands upon them from the Mosaic law and to kind of beat them into submission so that they stay on the straight and narrow all the way to glory. But dear brothers and sisters, no. You and I were not saved and justified by the Lord Jesus Christ 
in order to be sanctified by Moses. For you and I, that road is forever closed, the detour. And you and I are forever on the main path of salvation. Now, one thing I want to add to this is that does that mean you and I are now antinomians? That we're free of the law and we can do what we want? Well, that was the accusation leveled against Paul, and it'll be an accusation leveled against you if you hold to his doctrine, which is biblical and godly doctrine. But listen, Paul gives an answer to this, and it stems from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. What you're going to see is Paul, yes, abrogates the Mosaic covenant, but he replaces it with a new covenant, namely the law of Christ. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20 through 21. Now here Paul is saying that to those that he was ministering to, whether they be Jews with the law or Gentiles without the law, he became like them so that the only offense was the gospel itself. So he didn't compromise the gospel, but he came like them to win them. Listen to what he says. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law... As under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, now these are the Gentiles, he says, as without law. Now stop there. What does it mean, as without law? He became one who was like someone without the law of Moses. But then he says, notice, though not being without the law of God, but what? Under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. Notice what Paul is saying. If I can just put it in very simple English, what Paul is saying is, I am not under the jurisdiction in the red of Moses. In the underline, he's saying, I'm under the jurisdiction of Christ. He has gone from one lawgiver in one covenant, namely Moses, and the old covenant to a new mediator, a mediator of the new and eternal covenant, the covenant that will never go away, Jesus Christ. And by the way, dear brothers and sisters, when Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration and the voice cries out, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him, who was standing there? Well, Moses was gone, Elijah was gone, it was Christ. And therefore we know that he's God's lawgiver and not only Christ, but his apostles who give us his word. And so, brothers and sisters, we're not antinomians without the law. You and I are under what? We're under the law of Christ, the commands of the new covenant. And so, this is why Jesus says in Matthew 10 40 to his disciples, his apostles, who give us the scriptures, whoever receives you receives me. So, if I reject Paul's writings, I'm rejecting Jesus Christ who is the mediator of the new covenant, and now I'm lawless. Brothers and sisters, you and I are not lawless. We're just under a new lawgiver forevermore, the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise be to God for that. So, dear ones, consider this for just a moment. The Mosaic law as a binding legal code of do's and don'ts that you must do in order to be justified or sanctified has been abolished. You're under Christ. And so now you're bound by the terms of the new covenant. In fact, you and I are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. And what does Jesus say in the Lord's Supper? This is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. That's the covenant that you and I are in. Okay, 
Now, one of the issues I think that this raises is, well, does the law have any significance at all? Well, of course it does. And here's my point. I would say that the law is scripture still functions as prophecy and wisdom for the people of God. Think about it this way. When we talk about the relevance of the Mosaic law for us, the issue isn't the law, but the issue is how we approach the law. Or maybe another way of saying it is, what are we trying to do with the law? Are you and I trying to be saved and justified and sanctified by keeping the commands of the Mosaic law? If so, we're under a curse. But if we read the law as scripture in light of the new covenant fulfillment, it's always profitable for us. That's the grand point. Think of it this way. How many here go to a shopping center, wherever you go, and you see those real annoying signs, we ban guns on these premises? I hate those signs. What a dumb sign. It ensures that the only people who are going to have guns are the criminals, right? Here's why it's such a dumb sign. The issue isn't the gun. The issue is what you do with the gun. If you're using a gun to murder or to steal or to kidnap, that's a bad use of the gun. But if you're going to use a gun to kill a Muslim terrorist who's trying to stab people at the mall in St. Cloud, that's a good use of the gun. So why don't they just put up on the board, we ban murder and stealing and kidnapping on this premises. Do you know why I think? It's because it reminds them too much of what God calls them to, right? But the point of the ban of the gun, the reason it's so absurd is that it's not the gun, it's what you're doing with the gun. In the same way, the issue isn't the law, it's what are you trying to do with it? Are you trying to be sanctified by it? Are you trying to be saved by keeping its commands? You're under a curse. Cursed is everyone who is under the law. Paul said in Galatians 3.3, how is it that you who began by the Spirit, that salvation in Christ, are now trying to be perfected by the flesh? The flesh is the system of the law. And so, dear brothers and sisters, what are we trying to do with the law? And what I'm claiming is if we treat it as Scripture, then we have fine standing. Now, turn your Bible. I want to show you how Paul reappropriates the Old Testament and uses it as scripture. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 again, this time verses 9 through 10. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 9 through 10. So what you're going to see here now is Paul is going to use the Old Testament and reappropriate it for the people of God. Listen to what he says. He says, For it is written in the law of Moses, now here's Deuteronomy 25, 4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? And Paul says, yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Now stop there. This command in Deuteronomy 25, 4, was designed by God so that those who were feeding the people of God, even the oxen, would be cared for. So Paul here is making a lesser to greater. If the oxen that were threshing out the grain had to be fed because they were feeding the people of God, well, the apostles who are feeding the people of God the word are much greater, and so certainly they have the right to be paid. 
That's the argument that he's making. And then in 1 Timothy 5, he extends that to teachers and pastors, etc. Now, here's the point. Paul is taking the old covenant and he's reappropriating it for instruction for the people of God. He's using it as scripture. So if you and I go to Deuteronomy 25.4 and we say, you know what? I saw a farmer out there and it didn't look like his oxen were eating. We're going to go get them. We're going to stone them. No, that's not the point. The point is we should understand it in light of the new covenant. We ought to take care of those who give the word and feed the people of God. Do you see the difference? Now let me show you another passage. This is another one where Paul reappropriates the Old Testament and he uses it for the instruction of God's people. We have this in 1 Corinthians 10. Here, Paul is warning the Corinthian Christians about falling into idolatry and he uses the Old Testament example of the Israelites. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now stop there. What Paul is saying is, look, these Israelites... They had the Lord's Supper. They ate and drank what the Lord had given them. And in a sense, they had their own baptism. They were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. So yes, they were given God's gracious means. They had baptism and they had the Lord's Supper. And yet what happened? Just because they had those things didn't mean that they went on to the promised land. And so the idea then is that the Corinthians were boasting, we have the Lord's Supper. We have the Spirit. We've been baptized. We can do anything we want. And Paul's saying, no, not so fast. They fell in the wilderness because of unbelief, because of their idolatry, and so can you. And that's why he says in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Stop there. Why were they laid low in the wilderness? Ultimately, it's because of unbelief led them to idolatry. Paul says in verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. This is an example from the Old Testament for the Corinthian Christians to not engage in idolatry, to turn from it, that they can't be a partaker in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And Paul is using the Old Testament as Scripture to warn them. So yes, the Old Testament as Scripture is still binding but not as legal code. Let me give you another example. Here we have Romans 3, 21 through 22, and this is a very good one if you ever are confused on the issue. Notice what it says. Paul says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Stop there. He says apart from the law, the law as what? The law is binding legal code of do's and don'ts. That isn't the plan of salvation. It's apart from that that the true righteousness of God has been manifested or made evident, which is through Christ. But notice now he takes the law in a different way. In the red, he mm -hmm. says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So now the law functions not as the binding legal code, but what? As scripture. Because it's the law is scripture that points us to Jesus Christ. Didn't Genesis 3.15 say that the seed of the woman, the Messiah ultimately, was going to crush the serpent's head? Yes. Don't we learn Messiah is going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, from David? Yes. 
And so scripture was designed to point to this righteousness. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Now, turn your Bibles one chapter ahead to Romans chapter 4, verses 22 through 23. Again, Romans chapter 4, 22 through 23. Here, Paul has been arguing based on Abraham that salvation's always been by faith. Why? The law. The law says it. Genesis 15, 6. Where's Genesis 15, 6? It's in the law. And what does it say? That he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so Paul says in Romans 4, 22, Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. This is the law teaching us. He says, now for his sake only, excuse me, now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. The implication is that was written the law for our sake as well, that we may be instructed in messianic salvation. Dear ones, the law as scripture is still functional today. So that means we shouldn't be tearing out any of the pages of our Old Testament, right? Let me show you another passage, Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in earlier times, and he's talking about the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Dear brothers and sisters, the law will always function as Scripture to give the people of God wisdom and to point us to Christ. And this is why Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.15, remember he said to Timothy, he said, Timothy, you've known from your youth the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What sacred writings was Paul talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament, which included the law. And then he goes on to say that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God is equipped for how many good works? For every good work. Literally in the Greek, pas, all good works. It's sufficient for all. And that includes the Old Covenant, even the law. Now, let's leave on this one last passage. And again, the grand point is the law is Scripture, is still valid today. Let me show you where Paul succinctly says it one last time. Galatians 3, 19 through 22. Paul asks the question, why the law then? He says it was added because of transgressions. Stop there. It was added because of transgressions. What did we learn today in Romans 5, 20? Did the law temper the transgression or did it increase it? It increased it. And that's the point here. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed, who's the seed? That's the Messiah would come to whom the promise had been made. That's the main road. Do you see the main road had already been promised? It was just waiting for it to come to fruition. Verse 20, now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. The law then Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Stop there. You and I as dead sinners in Adam, when we're born into this world, we can't obey the law. And therefore, it couldn't be by the detour. Salvation had to be by the main road. And so notice what Paul does. Notice very carefully. Notice the shift 
from law in verse 21. Now he says, but the scripture, now he's using the law, not as the binding legal code of do's and don'ts. Now Paul is using the law as what? Scripture. He says, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. Stop there. I thought it was the law that shut up everyone under sin. It is, but as scripture. And it is as legal covenant because you and I can't obey it. But here shows the shift in Paul's mind himself that he's going from legal covenant to law as scripture. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What's the purpose of the law? It's a detour sign. And it's designed to point us back to the main road. Perhaps there are some here this morning that have, truth be told, you've been trying to justify yourself by the detour. Maybe there are some who are listening that are trying to be justified by human works. Maybe you're a Buddhist or a Hindu, a Mormon, a Muslim. Maybe you're an atheist. Whatever you are, Maybe you're spiritual and you're trying to be justified. If you're trying to be justified before God, apart from faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, you're off in the detour. And the role of that detour sign, the law, was to point you back to the main road of messianic salvation. Today is the day to repent and to turn from the detour of human works. Because through the law, the road of human works has been closed. Today is the day to repent and to trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the main road of God's salvation. Let's bow our heads in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you sent the law, that the law would show us that we are transgressors and sinners, that we can't obey you as we ought. And I do pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here listening that isn't trusting in Christ alone, that today would be their day that they would realize that he alone is their righteousness, that he alone is their atonement, that he alone is the main path of salvation that you have laid from long ago. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would put this gospel upon our lips, that we would not be a people who are tempted to be sanctified by returning back to the rules and ordinances of your Mosaic law, but we'd be those who persevere by your plan, by your spirit, all the way to glory. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.